Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. I love it. So I'll get you to start out by introducing yourself with your full name and your pronouns and a little bit about who you are and what you do. Great. Well, it's nice to meet you, Jill. Thank you so much. I'm Stephanie Seekich-Quinn, and I'm the Coastal Preservation Manager at the headquarters of Surfrider Foundation. My pronouns are she and her, and I am calling in from Kumeyaay Unceded Land Territory um, in San Diego, California. And I've been with Surfrider longer than probably I should admit, but (laughs) I've been with Surfrider for about 17 years. Um, and have seen so much growth and excitement for this organization. So I'm just stoked that you all want to learn more about us. Absolutely. I, like I told you, hadn't actually heard of Surfrider. And then once it was introduced to me, I went on this like deep dive. I watched these videos. I watched everything. And I was like, this is the coolest organization ever. I love it. So I am so excited to be sharing and highlighting it today. But before we dive into Surfrider, let's talk a bit about you and who you are. So what makes you a water woman? When did you kind of like fall in love with the water and the environment in general? Wow, actually, I, I got chills. I love that. Um, so I have been a water baby my entire life. Um, despite growing up in Colorado, my family spent a lot of time on the water Um, As you know, there's great rivers, so from a very small age, I was swimming in every lake, river, um, and pond you could think of uh, in Colorado, and really throughout the entire um, Rocky Mountain West, and then every summer, we would come to California and San Diego. Ironically, that's where I live now, (laughs) Um, and so we would take our annual motorhome trip out here, so I had both a feeling of, like, terrestrial, inland, beautiful places to swim. Um, And then obviously I had the ocean introduced to me at a very young age as well. Um, And I've always just been really passionate about the environment. I think primarily because my parents were so outdoorsy. It really just helped me earn this great respect and reverence for the environment at such a young age because I was constantly in the environment. I love that. You really kind of gain an appreciation for it. Like being able to be outside and be in it. It really, really helps. It changes everything. It absolutely does. Like I, even just growing up in a place where you can do that, opposed to growing up into, in a like large city, you get so exposed to things so early on. It's so amazing. I literally was just going to say that, but I was like, oh, well, I'll leave it out. But that's true. I mean, like a hundred percent, it's all location, location, location. And, and again, my parents teaching a very deep environmental ethic at a very young age. Absolutely. So did you, like you said, you loved the environment from a young age. Did you know that you wanted to pursue something career-wise with an environment or did that kind of come like as you got older, we're like, oh, this is actually something I can do as a job? It's really both. It's so funny because a lot of my friends and I think even this younger generation, um, which I'm actually quite envious of, um, you know, takes the gap year. I'm like, I didn't even know what that was, you know, yeah. um, my parents give me a choice about a gap year. Um, but I think, honestly, I, as cheesy and cliche as it sounds, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to, to do stuff to protect the environment. I remember driving to Boulder with my mom, um, and we were on the highway, and I was probably about five, and there was litter all over, and I looked out, and I was like, Mommy, none of this matches. 
like you know like an outfit like you match your outfit or something that yeah. was the thinking um at a really young age so and then as I got older and got into high school and I was a girl scout for many years and a brownie and a bluebird um so I was like wow I think I could do this because we'd have you know counselors come in and talk about the environment um yeah. so and then when I got into college I was like wow this is I'm fully not looking back um yeah. and Full I seem ahead kind of thing was just heads down so honestly I wish I could go back to my like 19 year old self and say hey Steph like don't burn out take it slow you're gonna be doing this for the rest of your life but uh, yeah you like, have lots of time yeah full, full steam ahead <laughs> I love that so what did you take because you your bio mentioned that you are a policy stats kind of kind of that's your route so what did you take how did you get there and how does that kind of tie into the environment like what it's not something we hear about super often we kind of tend to focus more on the what you can see what you can feel kind of thing so how did these tie in and how did you get to where you are and what you're doing with that it's so funny because when I read your questions prior to this, I was like, this is the, the sequence really that's important to me because it's like, really, because now that I'm in my mid to late 40s, I'm kind of doing a lot of inventory and I'm thinking, wow, it really has been a, a, a awesome a sequential progression for me. So to answer that question, after I realized I wanted and I had a passion and a very small age to protect the environment, when I got into college, I realized oh, wow, you have to understand laws and policies. Like, there's no two ways around this. If you want to do yeah. this and make actual change, you have to know literally what you're talking about in two realms. Um, yes. So obviously, science is key. You have to be, you have, you have to have a proclivity for science, understanding kind of um, deep details, but then being able to step back. So I had to get my science down, um, which I did through my undergrad. And then I started learning, again, more laws and policies and went into my master's degree to get my um, MA in environmental law and policy, because at that point, I realized I needed to have more tools in my tool belt to really change the world. And I, again, yeah. it sounds as cliche, as cliche as you can be, but I needed to hone in on the laws and policies so that I could make decision makers pay attention or make corporations follow the laws. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like there's this huge narrative right now of people preaching like it's individuals, like everyone can make a difference. And absolutely. Yeah. Like everyone can make a difference to an extent, but until these like lawmakers, decision makers, until these big overarching people in control kind of thing really make a difference, it's not going to make a difference. Exactly. Exactly. It's such a good point. It's amazing. So with that, what brought you to Surfrider and what is Surfrider? Yeah. Oh gosh. Again, that was <laughs> decades ago. It is almost decades ago. And that goes to show you what a great organization it is that people, and I'm not just one of the, um, the only ones who've been here for a long time. There's a lot of us. So, so I, after leaving graduate school, I moved to San Diego to be with my then boyfriend, now husband. Um, and I saw a job posting for them. And I had heard about them before. Prior to graduate school, I, I worked up in Seattle and I worked on public lands issues. And um, so, I mean, even though Seattle's not on the coast, there's a chapter there. So I had heard of Surfrider. Um, so I was like, all right, I'll give it a whirl. And it was for the local chapter, for their chapter manager. Um, and I quite frankly, honestly thought, oh my God, I'm overqualified for this, but I have to have a job. Um, and a lot of the job was more like, 
you know, um, administrative slash organizational slash beach cleanups. And I, I'm like, all I want to do is environmental law and policy. So I took the job because I was like, this organization's awesome. And I know that there's ways for me to use my environmental law and policy. And it totally was like, I'm so glad I took it and didn't look back because I was able to go to city council and the county commissioners and the, you know, the California coastal commission and all these state agencies. And then we had um, the Save Trestles campaign, which we can talk about later. Yeah. And um, it was just, you know, they, for a year. And that I was so passionate about that. I was like, you know what? I'm going to work myself out of a job. Um, they are going to hire me for a year. We're going to stop this toll road and I'm going to move on. Well, here we are almost 20 years later. And we finally, 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 finally have protected the park. Um, and I'm still here. But throughout the course of that, I've moved around in the organization, having several different positions. Um, like to your question, what is Surfrider? I mean, we're truly unique. I'm not saying that because I work for Surfrider. Um, again, I've been doing this work for 25 years all over the West Coast and, and um, Rocky Mountains and have volunteered and worked for dozens of environmental nonprofits. And Surfrider is truly unique because we are grassroots, like through and through. Absolutely. And I was like, well, the Sierra Club's grassroots, and it, it, it is, but we allow our chapters to kind of dictate what we're going to be working on. So our mission statement's pretty, pretty straightforward. It is, you know, we are dedicated to the protection and enjoyment of the world's ocean, beaches, and waves for all people. And the all people is really important um, for many reasons. Mm. That means every human has a right to access the beach. Um, and then our structure is really unique as well because we we have, you know, Chapters around the world, um, the majority of them are here in the U.S., but we have over, gosh, I'm trying to think, I had to write it down. So in, we're in 21 countries. We have 181 chapters in the U.S. Wow. We have over a million supporters around the world that, you know, chime in and help us do our activism. Um, and then we work at the local, state, and federal level. And my job primarily right now is to work at the federal level on climate yeah. change. Absolutely. I think it's so amazing that we have people like you that are so passionate about the law and connecting the two like big powerhouses here like the little people to the big people and like really fighting for that change that we all want because it's so such a difficult job and so hard to be able to articulate it in a way that is understandable to not only the general general public but to like the big people that you have to explain it to I'm not doing a great job at articulating it right now but no, you did, like, and I actually like how you just said from the little people to the big people and it's like you know I yeah. mean not like we're it, it, it is because it's like the people's house right that's what we call yeah. Congress the capital right Absolutely. the people's house and so it is it is exactly that is getting it from the people to the other people who are in charge or think they're in charge um mm. yeah it's really empowering is the point of surfrider structure and model it's very empowering to our members and supporters Absolutely. It's really amazing to see. And you talking about how it's still a grassroots organization, despite growing so much is so, so nice to see. So heartwarming almost because you know that it's not losing sight of its goal. It hasn't been like in air quotations, like bought out kind of thing. And it's really nice to see that. I agree wholeheartedly. Like I said, I've been doing this for 25 years and there's really no organization like us. I mean, it's pretty cool. No. So you mentioned the Save Trestles. What was that? That was kind of your little baby at the time, right? Oh so. It's still my little baby. It's like, my <laughs> father. 
It's like the Calder stage right now. Um, I love it. So, yeah. So, I mean, the, the long and short, I mean, I could stay on the phone with you, Jill, for hours about this because it truly is an amazing story. It truly is a story. Um, oh, a lot that. of people say it was the biggest uh, California environmental battle in the history of our state um, wow. because it drew so much attention from very high-level people like Clint Eastwood. Um, famous actors were coming to our side to help us. Um, primarily oh. because it was such an egregious project. So essentially what it was is San Onofre State Beach is California's fifth most visited state park. We have six million people that come to the park on an annual basis from all over the world. Um, within the park, there are endangered species. There's 12 of them. Um, there are uh, indigenous sites that are sacred burial sites that are there. So you have an indigenous connection, an environmental connection. So so um, within San Onofre State Beach as well is Trestle's surf spot. And it is one of the yes. only areas in the mainland where we do surf competitions. So of course we know we have Australia and Hawaii where we have all these competitions and then there's Trestle's that hosts it as well. So you have this park that has got ecological, cultural, and environmental resources that do not exist in Southern California. We have built out our environment so much here, um, and it's actually next to Camp Pendleton. Well, it's on Camp Pendleton. So the military has been owning and operating that land, so there's no development. So if you look at a map, even Google will show you, um, it's literally an undeveloped swath of land in wow. a metropolis of 20 million people. Wow, that's so, amazing to even have that. It's amazing. And I always say, thank God for Camp Pendleton, because otherwise yeah. it would have been developed like Los Angeles and San Diego. So yeah. it kind of paints a picture of just how unique this environment is and how meaningful it is for centuries to people um, and tribes that have been using it. So yeah. the proponents of the project wanted to build a 16-mile toll road through, through, I mean, I have to say through again, the park like smack dab through the middle of it like just bifurcate the whole thing you know and it was exactly I mean it's so it was so egregious oh that gosh. I just thought I like I said I'm gonna take this job and, and kill this project and, and work yeah. myself out of a job because it was so important so it, it's literally been 20 years that we've been trying to stop any kind of road from going in the park because California is full of traffic yeah, and you want to avoid the traffic so that, like, more roads, less traffic kind of thing. But that's but – oh, you guys can't see me right now, but my jaw was literally, like, on the floor when she mentioned that. The thought of destroying this ecosystem. No way. No. Oh and and most people didn't believe that that's what was going to happen, right? They're like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, that's the proposal. Yeah. So we had to fight it, Jill, at every, every cranny and nook and corner. I mean, literally, it was before – you know, the local water board, we had to, you know, go and, and have people attend that before the parks commission, people would attend that. And the biggest thing, and I'm sure you saw was our big coastal commission hearing in 2008. Uh, we had over 3,500 people show up from around the world. We went into that hearing thinking we were probably going to lose. And if they had gotten that permit, it would have been the end of the, the road for us, no pun intended. They would have been able to build the road immediately. But when you show up <laughs> to a hearing with 3,500 people, the decision makers literally stop in their tracks. And again, yeah. this is, I have chills to this day when I think of it because... I have goosebumps right now. Like, honest to God, that's insane. It's insane. And it was just so overwhelming. Like, they couldn't say yes to this project because they no. had the people there. They had thousands yeah. and thousands of people up in arms. And so we and won. 
3,000 people is just the ones that could make it that day. That's just like, that's almost double it of at least for the people that are like, no, absolutely not. So I'm, you won. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And it's funny because people watched it online and we had people literally from Japan to New Zealand send me emails the next day saying, I stayed up and watched it. It was a 12 hour hearing. It was in Spain. So we won. And of course, the, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to highlight that as the positive because as with any project or, or really with the coast, it's, it's never being saved. It's always being saved. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there's always going to be another project. And so despite winning that huge public hearing, you know, the toll road developers appealed to the federal government and, you know, so it's been another 15 years of us fighting them back. Um, We filed lawsuits. We won those lawsuits. And then finally, this is the coup de grace, as they say, last year we had legislation introduced in the California legislature that essentially banned all roads. You know, even though we'd won our, our, our lawsuits and all the other, you know, different avenues to stop this project, we needed to have a law on the book that said, uh-uh, yeah. no. So Don't even bother fighting it kind of thing. Like just, you know, this isn't allowed. Yeah, you can't. It's state law now. So we had to put a bow on every avenue. It goes back to your law and policy question. You know, we beat them like what you call the regulatory, the regulatory agencies. We beat them in court and now we beat them. And I don't mean beat, but it's, but we were trying so hard to ensure that this park had no roads, not even a toll road in it. So yeah, after 20 years, here we are. I mean, that was a very long answer, but after 20 years of trying to save a park, I guess it deserves a a bit of long-windedness, I guess. Absolutely, it does. <laughs> that is insane. And the fact that that hearing was 12 hours for, like, that is incredible. And that you fought for that that whole time. Amazing. You are superwoman right here, so. <laughs> You're awesome. But it's really, like, people like you oh and me that have gosh. to do it, right? Like, you don't all have to know the law and policies. You just show up when you need to. And it, it really kind of scares the bejesus out of people because they're like oh my god all of my constituents are paying attention like yeah I get letters here and there but wow so it really it's going back to the beginning of the podcast when you're saying each individual does have an impact and absolutely absolutely it's incredible to see I'm not kidding you when I say I have actual goosebumps right now after hearing that like that is an incredible incredible and was this like your first real big project with Surfrider too? Like one of the first things you started with or had you kind of been with them for a little while? Yeah, I had been with them for a little bit. So we have um, at the chapter level, one of the big projects that we started and now it's actually going off around the world is our hold on to your butt campaign, which is basically don't throw your cigarette butts on the ground. And so we installed ash cans. So I I was like, hey, I'm going to try to get a grant. And I got a grant and then we started installing ash cans in San Diego. And now our chapters around the world are putting these ash cans in. So yeah, that. there's, there's a lot of other things that I've done with Starfighter, but this one was the longest um, and truly the most important, not just for me because I, I was helping working on it, it because it was so precedent setting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like cigarette butts don't get enough hate. They really Seriously. don't. Straws get all the hate and obviously some well-deserved hate there, but Straws make up like, what is it, like 0.03% of the ocean debris. When it's like cigarette butts are, you could walk outside literally anywhere, just look on the ground for five minutes and find at least five. Oh, like, easy. It's They're ubiquitous. Crazy. Cigarette butts are ubiquitous. They're literally everywhere. And they are such a nightmare because, I mean, the filters are meant to trap chemicals. Yeah. And so when they get into aquatic environments, they release all of those chemicals. And there could be up to 5,000 carcinogens 
in a butt itself. And then it's obviously got plastic, which isn't biodegradable. So it will stay around for hundreds of years and then birds eat them and other things. So yeah, I mean, I agree. What did you say? They don't get enough hate. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. More hate for cigarette butts. I don't promote hate unless it's for cigarette butts. Hashtag don't promote hate unless it's for cigarette butts. (laughs) That's it. The only hate I will support here is for cigarette butts. Um, it's one of those things too, that like, I've done so many beach cleanups literally all over the world. I did beach cleanups in Spain, Australia, Canada, US, like I've participated, helped with them. And cigarette butts are the one thing that we pick up. Like, I think I have a picture of a full, full jar, like, like a big jar size of my head. And it's just insane to think about that. And a lot of times I remember I was cleaning up with one woman and she was like, Oh, I don't want to pick those up. Like somebody's mouth has been on that. And I was like, I get that. Like, it's gross, but here's some gloves. Like, come on, scoop it up. Like, who cares if it's gross? You're also holding probably something that someone blew their nose in and threw on the ground. So (laughs) get over it. It's so gross. They're disgusting. They are. Again, this, this podcast is purely now a cigarette, but hate podcast. Nothing else. (laughs) Nothing else matters. If you don't like, if you need motivation not to smoke, that's it. Like I, don't care if you smoke, just keep your cigarette butts in a jar to yourself. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. So you mentioned chapters and all over the world surf rider being very prevalent. How do these chapters work? What are the campaigns for the chapters? What are kind of some of the, the big ones that are going on right now? Awesome question. So again, we're grassroots. So a chapter will be started by volunteers. They put in a paper, um, application to our headquarters office to become a certified official chapter. We have bylaws in place. We won't get into that. So it's just to make sure that everything's like copacetic, that we're doing things by the book. We're, we're making sure everyone's yeah. organized because they're volunteers, right? They have nine to five jobs and then they're spending the rest of their lives helping us. So we want to make That's it absolutely easy amazing. It's, it's true. I mean, Jill, like it's crazy. Some of these people, That's I have incredible. like attorneys that are like in high profile jobs and I'm like, can you read this document for me? And they're like, yeah, when I get out of court, which is at like 10 o'clock at night after they've like been through traffic and they're, it's like, it's insane. So yeah. So we have these volunteers who are uber motivated. We give them a structure. Um, and then we have staff. So we have staff that work with them on just organizational stuff. Like how do you set up your chapter? We have regional staff that are literally on the ground with them that help with everything from building campaigns to balancing their, their checkbooks. And then we have, um, like initiative staff like myself that work on, for me, it's climate change. But we have five initiatives across the board. So we have plastic pollution and all of our chapters around the world are participating in one of these, if not all of these initiatives. Um, So that gets to your point of like, what are they working on and what are the biggest things? And we we really, again, house them in these initiatives. So we have plastic pollution, which is like, duh, the no brainer. It's such an egregious problem. Um, The one that everyone kind of knows about. Everybody knows about. Exactly. Um, and then we have beach access, which I was talking about at the top of this, which is great because yeah. we're saying you have to be able to have an inalienable right to access the coast. And as we're starting to see with climate change, um, our, our beaches are being swallowed through extreme weather events and sea level rise. So the average person is having a harder time getting to the beach now because of climate change. That's an access issue. That's an equity issue. We also have, you know, inland communities who can barely, you know, afford to get to the coast. And when they get there, there's parking. They can't pay for that. So we feel like that's not a good right. Or or that's impinging on their right that they can't even get to the beach and spend a bunch of money. And then to me, the most 
Um, appalling one is when wealthy individuals keep the public off the beach in front of their house. Private beaches, yes. That's it blows my mind. Even yeah. the beach accessibility like you're making or mentioning, being somewhere that I could literally walk out my front door, walk 10 minutes and be down to at least a waterfront, maybe not an exactly beach. It, the thought of not being able to access a excess, access. that's a word. Access, that, thank you. <laughs> not being able to access a beach. It's not a Canadian absolutely, word. <laughs> yeah. It does it blows my mind. Like I'm like, what no. do you mean I can't go to the beach? And it's something that I wouldn't think of until someone brought it up to me, like, oh yeah, like this is an issue. And it's incredible. And I love that Surfrider is not only an environmental group, but it's also at the end of the day a human rights group. Absolutely. Like you have the right to go here and enjoy this. Absolutely. We are a human rights group because we, we believe everybody has the right to access the beach. And, and to your point, one of the most horrible, appalling examples is in Malibu, where you have some of the richest, famous people literally on the planet. And they're, they're putting up, quote, air quote, private beach when it literally is a public beach. They're yeah. hiring fake security guards to come and kick people off the beach. They will paint the curbs red, which means no parking, even though it's public parking. Um, and we've won. We've beat them at all of these. We would go to the Coastal Commission. And again, there's laws in place that say Californians have our Constitution. Our Fourth Amendment of our Constitution says you have the right to access navigable waters. Yeah. And if someone's getting in the way, then that's not OK. So so that's our beach access one. Um, and then our coastal preservation is what I run. And that's really straightforward. That is making sure that bad buildings are not popping up along the coasts. We're not putting seawalls in that starve sand. And then most importantly, and really pressing is to work on climate change to ensure yes. that our coastal communities are going to be able to withstand. Um, and they're already experiencing it. The, you know, impacts of climate change and sea level rise, extreme weather events, et cetera. Um, then we have our ocean protection initiative, which is just to make sure the ocean is happy and healthy. We help produce marine protected areas, areas where people can't fish um, or there's extra levels of protection for the ecology that's there. Um, and that initiative also houses um, fighting offshore oil drilling. And as you know, if you're in school in Australia, um, there's a lot of fighting that's been going on around the world about offshore oil drilling. And yeah. we have been so successful with that as an organization. It's amazing. And then finally, we have our water quality initiative, which is just, again, very explanatory, um, ensuring that our waterways are healthy to swim in. And so really, at the end of the day, we wrap up those five initiatives by saying um, clean water and healthy beaches. And that encompasses yeah. everything that we do. We want clean water and we want healthy nice. beaches. Healthy beaches means not just ecologically, but with people being able to enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. That's like, I knew Surfrider did a lot, but to cover that much ground all over the world is, I cannot tell you how incredible this is. Like, that's amazing. Thank you. Amazing. So it just like, I still can't even wrap my head around this whole beach accessibility issue for people to like, like I get wanting to have your own private property, but this is a public beach. Like that would be like me putting a house in the middle of a park, putting a fence around the entire park and saying, no, I actually own it all. Yeah. No, wrong. Right. And it's what's funny is it's not trying to twist <clears throat> just how we use laws and policies to reinforce the right thing. They will try to use laws and policies for loopholes to be like, well, like this, this strip underneath, because now with sea level rise, 
the beaches are going legit in this area. It's called Broad Beach. Google it. Um, the, the beach is gone. So what's happened is that they're, they've elevated their homes and now it truly is 100% our beach because there's nothing in front of it. It's gone. And so that's another reason that's driving them to keep people out is because the beaches have just dissipated. Yeah. So, and we're like, no, 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 Now you can't do that. Like it is navigable water under your house. Yeah. <laughs> and, sorry, and but it is our, our right to access that. Um, so it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a lot of hubris. I mean, I gotta be honest with you, Jill. I was shocked that people would go through this, like these rigmaroles to, to just legit keep people off the beach. Um, Some of these things that you're mentioning is absolutely like mind blowing and heartbreaking at the same time. Like talking about like drilling for oil, preventing people from accessing, um, beaches and whatnot. Like, it's just like, have we not learned from the past at all? Have we not learned from Deepwater Horizon? Have we not learned from like did your parents not teach you how to share? Like, right. Why would you want to build a road through this pristine ecosystem? I, some people I just don't understand. And the fact that they're trying to use the law to twist that is incredible. And I'm so happy with people like you that are like, hold up. Absolutely not. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And when you mentioned the Deepwater Horizon spill, I went down there after the spill um, and worked with local communities on figuring out how to get out of this mess and what did that look like for fishermen and women because that obviously the Gulf has so much of our of our you know seafood that we eat in America mm-hmm. and it was talk about heartbreaking so to see yeah. those impacts of an oil spill straight up um, and then to go on the beaches and I was there a couple months after um, and there was still tar all over the beach so. Yeah, you know, you think to your point that we learn. I think it's just again, it's we have a saying at Surfrider: um, constant pressure, endlessly applied, and mm. that really kind of fits with all of this, um, all of these subjects that you're you're talking about with me today. It's amazing. Yeah. I love that. That's that's a really great way to phrase it. Is like in the you need the constant pressure. You need endless, otherwise. Need yeah, it's always got to be there. It's always got to be. Like someone who's trying to do something bad, you always, it's like the, like literally as cliche as it sounds, it's like talking about a superhero, like comic. There's always this villain that wants to do something bad, but there's always that superhero that's like, you know, I'm going to stop you. Like, I don't know why you're even bothering to try. Right. And I'm going to get thousands of people to help me. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Literally, literally. You have so many people, which is the fact that Surfrider is such a worldwide, huge, huge organization is absolutely incredible and again the fact that it's managed to stay at grassroots so I guess with that like how do you guys find funding what funds your uh, chapters what funds your campaigns how because it's obviously can't just be all volunteers like you mentioned you have staff like where is your funding coming from that's a really great question because obviously that this plagues literally plagues the nonprofit world hence the word no money no profit um, so in, it's different for all of our chapters and really each country at the end of the day. So yeah. I'll just kind of focus on America. Um, and a lot of our funds come from membership donors oh, wow. like you, like you just writing us a $50 check. Um, it's not, you know, the entire budget, but again, surprisingly, it's, it's substantial. I was surprised mm-hmm. when I looked at the numbers, I was like, yes. So that's great. Then we also have like large donors, you know, like people who definitely have more money than the average person who can, you know, write us a bigger check or whatnot. Um, And then we do a lot of grants and that can be from private foundations um, that, you know, 
give grants to organizations like us. And then we have smaller foundations that give grants to us as well. And then sometimes we can get grants from either the federal government or a state government. So there's there's four or five different types of grants we go after. And then it's all connected to a campaign with deliverables. And I think that's why nonprofits and advocacy people are so efficient is because your money doesn't endlessly come to you. Every quarter, you have to prove what you've done through deliverables and rubrics and metrics. And because people want to know how their money spends. I do too. I always like check in on who I donate to and see what they're doing with it. So um, because we have this rigor of, you know, grants, foundations, and just even our donors, we want them to know like, hey, your 20 bucks did this this week. So um, yeah, those are kind of the sources of funding we have. And it does go to, as you said, for staff, but then it goes for other things like, you know, we have our water quality testing program where we need yeah. to have equipment, um, we do conferences for our chapter. So it goes to different things than just staff. We have a, a merchandise um, store, um, which always gives me a kick because they always have cool stuff in our our European chapter. They're based in France and their, their merchandise stuff is so cool. They're so funky and edgy. Like they like, they blow us away with coolness, to be honest with you here I in America. Um, so yeah, we sell uh, some some membership that, or some merchandise that gives us money, but it's not a ton of it. But those are the different um, revenue streams. I love that. I love that you brought up the donations, but also it's not something that you're like, okay, you have to donate to us if you want to help. It's like you could donate to us. You can volunteer within a different chapter. Like, because as like right now, I'm a student. I'm working a part time job. I don't have a lot of money that I can, unfortunately, like. I unfortunately don't have a lot of money that I can just be like, hey, Sir Ryder, I love you here. This is $1,000. Like, I would love to be able to do that, but I need to eat sometimes, occasionally <laughs> at least. At least one so, day. <laughs> it's nice to know that there's other options. Like, I could look up a chapter around my area. I could find a way to volunteer for you guys or help out without having to like spend money because obviously there's going to be costs like getting there and everything, but like without just having to give a donation like I can help out still I think that's absolutely amazing and again not to toot our own horn but again that's that's surfwriters like magic sauce right like Ooh. some organizations are like you need to give us money to to be part of leadership you know which is like if you're running a chapter because we have literally a chair a vice chair a secretary you know just like any yeah. nonprofit, and they're all volunteer yeah. but for us it, we we do exactly what you just said it's like if you can volunteer and read a legal briefing for Stephanie because she doesn't have any time. Like I'm good with that. Like that's, that's a membership to me. Like, thank you. Thank you. You know, of course we want people to become members, yeah. um, but you're right. We, we look at it as engagement at the end of the day to make a result. It really is rather than you be like, it obviously is an organization, but it just feels less like an organization and more like a group of people with a common goal. And that's, that's what it is at the end of the day. I love that. Jill, it's so true. Like, this is the last thing I'll say about us. Like, in, like, fire. No, no. Toot pump. your horn. Beat this horn as loud as you can because it absolutely deserves it. Well, and it's the culture, right? And it's right. It, what you just said literally gives me chills because it is a group of people with a common goal. And that is it. And yes, other nonprofit, environmental nonprofits do the same thing. But because Surfrider has this culture set up where we are truly grassroots, also being beach people and surfers, it is a um, very tight community. And yeah. so I have met legitimately my best friends through Surfrider. Some of my I best friends that. have married their partner through Surfrider. So it does have this truly amazing family feel to it that you ju- it, you can't reproduce. It's totally authentic. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. So actually, I do have to ask, where does the name Surf Rider come from? Great what question. What be called Surf Rider? Great, great question. A lot of people think it's just because we're out there riding waves, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's part of it, sure. But actually, it was founded in Malibu at Surfrider Beach. So what was going on there is there was, I know, isn't that cool? It literally came from a place, our very first place that we saved. Um, we looked oh, up and we're like, well, let's just call ourselves the Surfrider Foundation. So there was um, really bad water quality going on um, in this particular beach, again, Surfrider Beach in Malibu. Um, and then there were some other developments that were maybe going to be planned. And so... I mean, it literally, as we say, it was like a handful of visionary surfers that were like, no, we don't want to swim in that. We don't want to look at a coastline that's developed. We're going to take it on. And that's it. Yeah. That's how it started. That's it. It's like that simple. That. That's amazing. So like that goes back to like, if it's that simple to starting, that really goes back to the, it's a group of people with a common goal. Like that really is what Surf Rider is. I love that. I love how you say that. That's, that's great. Fantastic. So for everyone listening that obviously wants to get involved now, because how could you not after listening to us talk about this for the past 40 minutes, how can they get involved? How can they find a chapter in their country, in their town? How do they know how they can help? Exactly. So go to our website, really easy, surfrider.org, and then click on chapters. So you can find a chapter by you or click on affiliates, which is our global partnerships. Um, And like you said, if you can't, do a lot, just go to a beach cleanup. You know, we have them all of the time. I mean, it's amazing. So there's little things you can do to, again, big things like helping write comment letters that will go to the president. Like we just submitted a letter to President Biden, you know, about climate change. So it kind of runs the whole gamut. So yeah, go to our website, check it out. Lots of fun stuff on social media as well. All of our chapters have just clever feeds and I always love checking it out so between your standard website and and social media I think you'll get a really good idea of of how you can plug in and yeah yeah so if someone actually was listening and wanted to join and went to the chapters and affiliates and there was none near them could they make their own chapter could they start a new chapter yeah yeah theoretically amazing yeah and 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 yes I say theoretically because as I mentioned we want to make sure these chapters are long-standing, so yeah. we have a rigor that's in place to ensure we're not just like willy-nilly. And I think to your point earlier, why we're still so grassroots but very uh, results-driven is because of the way we've set up the structure. Um, but yeah, in fact, we just had a new chapter created in Senegal, Africa. That's our newest that. chapter. That's amazing. So Big shout that, out to them. That's just the newest one. That is so incredible. I love to hear that. And oh, then, and real quick before I forget, this is super important. Yeah. We have clubs with our um, universities and high schools all over the world. Um, cool. I think there's over total, there's over 235 clubs around the world. Um, and that's just for students in school like you who go, hey, I want to work on um, banning balloons or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Like, And then you get a bunch of people together at your school and you do your club thing and help us out. So we really have tried to find every um, avenue for everyone to get involved. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that there's opportunities for students too. Cause like we were talking about earlier, like sometimes it can feel almost defeating as a student where you're like, I can't donate. I don't really have the time to volunteer for a six hour day kind of thing. So I love that there's opportunities with the clubs and everything. That's so amazing. 
Yeah. And you don't have to be a surfer. I just want to say that. A lot of people <laughs> oh, are like, man. do you surf to be part of it? And I'm like, I am the worst surfer on our entire map. <laughs> Legitimately, I'm the token nerd. So that's cool. Everybody else go surf. No big deal. But I just want to make that clear. We're not like this, you know, club of surfers. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. I love it. Okay. So now we're on to my two favorite questions of the podcast. These might be the hardest questions I ask you all day. Oh my gosh. And I didn't, I didn't send them to you to prep. So I'm really putting you on the spot here. What, if you could be any ocean animal, what ocean animal would you be? Yeah. Right. This is seriously one of the hardest questions I've received all day. And will absolutely. This is, this is overwhelming, Jill. Um, <laughs> This is serious here. Okay, I have two. Can I do two? Yeah, we can do two. I'll allow it today. Okay, thank you. Um, The whale shark. Absolutely. Great choice. And a narwhal. Like, I want to be a a unicorn um, dolphin who wasn't. There you go. That's it. Honestly, fantastic choices. I love that. I love (laughs) that there's some whale in there because I am whale girl. So they're like, you had to. You had to. I mean, you're basically a unicorn dolphin. The a unicorn dolphin. That's what they are. So how could you not want to be them? And then my favorite question is if there was a little girl listening who was like, oh my God, finally someone I relate to. I love policy. I love this. I want to do what she does. What would be your biggest piece of advice for this little girl that wants to be like you? Wow. What a great question, Jill. And I have a 10 year old daughter. So I always try to think of the world through her eyes. I would say you have to work really hard and know your facts and then fortune will follow. I love that. I love that. I feel like hard work doesn't get a good rap anymore. Like it's kind of like. Agreed. Like I said, find your facts and fortune will follow because that's where I really learned it. I was like, Oh my God, when I'm able to recite this law, then people are like, Whoa, you know, you get your facts and people pay attention to you and you get results because of it. She knows what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't get those facts unless you spend a bunch of hard work getting them. Exactly, exactly. Oh, I love that. That is some of my favorite advice I have ever had on this podcast, which I honestly, I think I say to every new person who gives me a piece of advice, but it's always great advice. So I don't know (laughs) what else to say. And now, lastly, if people wanted to follow along with you and for Surfrider, is there any ways they can find you on social media? Yeah, so Surfrider, our handle's just at Surfrider. Um, very straightforward. And I am, uh, my handle on Twitter is Stephanie.Seekich. Okay. And that will be perfect. And that will be listed in our bio down below and on all of our social medias as well. Stephanie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It has been so fun to get to talk to you and learn more about Surf Rider. And I can't wait to go find a chapter near me. Awesome, Jill. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your podcast and bringing awareness about women who are are protecting our waterways and enjoying them at the same time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I love sharing these stories with you, and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.